0: Word, please take it and turn to the book of Philippians. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew in front of you, and you can find Philippians chapter 3 on page 678, 678. I'm going to read chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, but our preaching portion today, the text we will focus in on is uh, verses 2 and 3 only. For context, I will begin reading in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 11. If you found your way there, please go ahead and stand as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning. Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. The Titanic is probably the most... Famous ship ever built. And ironically famous because it didn't do what it was designed to do, famous for sinking. Um, How it happened is known. They collided with a iceberg. You know, more of the iceberg was below the water than was above. And you know, that night looked like a clear and calm and beautiful night, and maybe too calm. That was one of the factors, perhaps, is that it looked it was so calm there was there wasn't any surf splashing up on the iceberg. They don't really know the exact causes. The, the man on the lookout didn't have his binoculars. Uh, it said there was an illusion created because of these calm waters of a false horizon. The ship was traveling faster than it was supposed to. All of these various things have been proposed, but bottom line is we know that the unsinkable ship, it sank. And Christians today like Christians in every generation, really, through history, as we are traveling this world, we are navigating the waters of life. They are dangerous waters. And if we aren't careful, you'll wreck your faith. And the danger might not come from where you think it comes. And so it's going to take a great deal of discernment because we live in a time that Though Christians in every age needed discernment to navigate the waters of life, we live in a peculiar time where you have, through technology, false teachers, false prophets, those who would deceive, those who look very much like Christianity. They have direct access to you, or you have direct access to them. Right? You can open your phone, and just through scrolling, you may be exposed to an entire plethora of uh false teachers that appear on the surface to be true and biblical. Now, you couple this um, technological age to where non-Christian teachers who claim the name of Christ have direct access to you with this other cultural phenomenon, which is relativism, meaning that there really is no such thing as absolute truth. There's only gradients. There's only variations of truth. And everybody has some access to the truth in some kind or another. And so these two phenomenons, they come together to create an incredibly dangerous dangerous atmosphere to which you live now and which your children will grow up in. And so we need to have a tenacious discernment about us and... I think Paul's exhortation to the Philippians can wake us up. We can be comfortable in our faith and think that we aren't in any danger whatsoever and we may be adding to the truth of the gospel, we may be subtracting to it uh, without noticing how the slip occurs. Um, There are people in Paul's day and in our day, they deceive many people. Not only many of those who are not in the church, but many of those who are in the church. Are deceived, And so today, if you're taking notes, there'll be three points. There's the exhortation to the church, the enemy of the church, and the exaltation of Christ. So a little bit of context for you. Philippians 3, 1 through 11, which we're looking at this morning, not the whole thing, but just 2 through 3. In this section, it's a very special section to me. Because it is in this section that I was sitting in... Uh, Pew, like you, and God chose to bring me to salvation through the preaching of this text. So it's a, this is a marvelous section of Philippians, and it's an important section to me personally. And the purpose of this section is to clarify, to make clear, to make absolutely clear that salvation is exclusive in Jesus Christ and only on the grounds of faith. Faith alone in Christ alone alone. No human work, no human merit, no genealogy. There is nothing you can bring to God at all. It is simply on the basis of faith in Christ alone that you can find a righteousness that is not yours, that God gives to you as a gift. It is the righteousness of Christ given freely as a gift solely on the grounds of faith alone. That is what he is absolutely clarifying and trying to drive home to the Philippian church. Why? Because there is a threat to the church, to the threat to the early church. There are people who have all the correct doctrine. Okay? They're traveling around the same places that Paul is traveling to the churches he's planted. They believe in the Trinity. They believe that salvation is exclusive to Christ alone. They believe salvation is by faith through grace alone. And yet they will add one thing. Only one thing. And that one thing will destroy Christianity completely. And so he begins this section where he's going to address this. Um, If you look at your text with this uh, command, finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord. Now, this acts as a uh, transition from one section to the to the last section of Philippians. But it's more than just that. This command is the safeguard. It's the safeguard if you are rejoicing in the Lord, then you will not succumb, succumb to any additions or perversions of the gospel that would have you look to anywhere else except for to Christ alone. So that is the safeguard. And then he, he comes to this morning, which we're going to look at in 2 through 3 today. And then he, in verse 4, gives the example of himself. Look at verse 4. Though my, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. And he lists all of these a human points, right? He's a Hebrew, a Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin. As, as to his lineage and his keeping of the law, he's a Pharisee. As to his zeal, he persecuted the church. He lists all these things and he says they're all absolute garbage. They're all trash. He said, I trade them all for one thing. And that's to have Christ alone. No human works. Everything else is trash." So that he could have a righteousness that is not his own, but one that is through faith alone in Christ. That's the section. And So today we'll deal with verses 2 through 3. So my purpose in looking at these is to help you to become vigilant so that you will safeguard your own faith and your soul, but also to safeguard the church, to protect your family, and ultimately to glorify God and to honor the Lord Jesus Christ above all. So, today we will look at in verses two through three the exhortation to the church, the enemy of the church, and the exaltation of Christ. First, the exhortation to the church. Look back at your text. You're going to see it. It's look out. And and notice the repetition it's three times look out, look out, look out. And you know, if you see repetition in the Bible, because you're students of the Bible, you know it is signifying something of absolute urgency and absolute importance. Look out for dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What does it mean to look out? Well, it means to, to become aware, to beware, to be aware, to be, to be vigilant on the watch, not to be just coasting along in your Christianity, to know that there is a real danger to the church that seeks to infiltrate the church. To constantly be on guard, to be on the lookout. In 2007 in Kirkuk, Iraq, we had watch towers every 300 meters, and stationed in those was a 50 cal machine gun pointed outward. And people had duty, they had guard duty. That was their job. In fact, the Air Force came to do that job. So that the army guys, so that we could just sleep at night and do the rest of our job. So we had to worry about that job. So they came, and that was their entire job, was to just watch out and to be vigilant. So they get in the guard tower. They're not up there playing their, you know, their Nintendo DS or whatever today. They're not up there with their phone. They're up there being vigilant. They're watching because there's a real danger. And that's the kind of urgency that we should have when we see things like this in the text, that Paul the Apostle, under the authority of Jesus Christ, is telling you, you can never coast through life as a Christian. There is always a constant danger. You're to be on guard, to be on the lookout, to beware. There are people who look very much like Christians but would destroy your faith. And so this is the exhortation to the church. Beware. We are to look out for those who the Bible calls false teachers, false prophets, those causing divisions by bringing in destructive heresies. I did a quick look through the New Testament, and on at least 12 occasions, there are probably more, but at least 12, you'll have great warnings against people that look like Christians in every way, yet can potentially destroy the church. Here are just a few, Romans 16, 17 through 18. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. So here are the kind of people who will come into the church or who pose to be Christians or maybe even themselves believe to be Christians but they have false doctrine and they bring divisions. They are often good speakers. They're the best speakers. And with flattery, they deceive many people. They cause divisions through false teaching, which appear to be correct teaching, and they create obstacles to the true faith, the true doctrine that Paul has brought to the church. 2 Timothy 4, 3-4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So these people, they will come and appeal to you in something that you already want. There's something in your fallen nature, in your flesh nature, that wants to hear things that would appeal and appease your conscience. And they are ready to fill that void. And so they will come as a supposed Christian pastor. And they will come and they will tick you, tickle your ears. And they will give you exactly what you want to hear. But they will teach and turn many people away from the faith. Wander off into myths. They look good and with a pretty smile. right? And they're comforting. Matthew 7. are The words of our Lord in Matthew 7, 15, 16. 15 through 16, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. So here we have again, what does this often look? What are we to be on the lookout for, right? It's not going to be obvious as some blatant rank heresy. It's going to look good. It's going to be like a sheep. This is like a, this is a Trojan horse, It's a sheep Trojan horse. The sheep comes in, but surprise, it's not a sheep. It's a wolf. And he seeks to devour you. But you'll recognize them by their fruit, meaning you're able to make a judgment. You're able to discern, right, if you are wise and you know the Scriptures. This is the great danger to the church, always, because in Paul's time as well as our time and every time in between, there are always these people, always people who, fe- who will peddle false teaching, but it will look good, they will look good, they will appeal, they will appear to be good, and they may even hold all of the doctrines that we say are essential. And yet there's one thing wrong. There's one thing off. And so you're to beware, to look out, to be on the lookout, to be vigilant. Watch out for those who are, who are wolves in sheep's clothing that come into the church. And they're being piped into your phone right now. If you open your phone and you scroll through any various form of social media, you will be exposed to them. So look out. Well, what does it mean? How do I do that? How do I, how do I be on the lookout? Well, that means you're going to have to judge people. You're going to have to judge people. We have to make a judgment. Uh-oh. <laughs> this, is, this is like uh, the most popular verse in, in our culture. right? What is it? Judge not, lest you be judged. Matthew 7.1. Right? It used to be John 3.16, but I think it's now Matthew 7.1. Judge what? not, lest you be judged. And that's the perfect thing for a false teacher to hide behind. It is completely secular in this completely secularized culture is even worse because because people will then use that verse to judge not and they'll and they'll weaponize it against you. So people today, people who don't even believe in Jesus at all, they don't even say that they're a Christian. They'll use it against you. Right. They'll say you can't you can't judge. You can't you can't judge. Only God can judge. In fact, your teacher, Jesus, tells you not to judge. So you're not even a good follower of Jesus because Jesus never judged anyone. He loved everyone, he was open, and and he was inclusive, and he was about love for everyone. So you you aren't even following Jesus. You can't violate his teachings. But they don't don't care to continue through uh, Matthew 7, right? They don't care to continue. Because in Matthew 7, 6, Jesus will also tell his disciples, Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they turn and trample you underfoot. So how are you supposed to know if someone is a dog and will devour you and someone is a pig and will trample you underfoot if you never make a judgment call? If you can never judge anyone? You can't, right? It's important that you realize that Jesus never said for us not to judge, right? The idea is that you judge with right judgment, which is what he says in John seven twenty four. He actually tells you, judge with right judgment. And he also will say with the same manner you judge, you'll be judged, so what, how do we judge? There's only one correct way to judge. It's not my preference. It's not what I like. It's not what you like. It's not what makes you comfortable or makes you uncomfortable. That's not how you judge people. You judge according to God's word. There's only one standard by which a judgment can be made. God's word is firmly fixed in the heavens. It is unmovable, unshakable. God's word never changes. It is perfect and sufficient to make judgments. Right. How else could, could, could Jesus tell us that you'll know them by their fruits? Watch out for those wolves who come in in sheep's clothing seeking to devour you. You'll know them by their fruits. If you can't judge, you are to make a judgment. Judge according to God's word. And that's how you are on the lookout. That's how you watch out. Paul warns the Ephesian church in the book of Acts He's speaking to the Ephesian elders as he's about to be sent off. He speaks to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. He says, even among the elders, listen to this. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Even in the church, in an elder group, could arise a false teacher. In the church should be able to discern through the word of God, is this a teacher of God or is this a wolf that's come to devour? We are to be on the lookout. Jesus constantly tells us this, that in the latter times, that false Christs and false prophets will, will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. You think people are easily deceived now? Wait till false prophets start performing real miracles by the power of Satan. So many will be deceived. This is, a, this is deadly serious. Eternity for people, your eternity, might even be at stake. You have to make the correct judgment. So if you're in a, sp- a spiritual slumber... If you're just out sailing the high seas of life on calm waters, better wake up. If your spiritual life is on cruise control, time to turn it off. You're commanded to be vigilant. Guardians of the truth, guardians of the gospel, to look out. That's the exhortation to the church. Look out. You're too too asleep. You're sleeping on guard duty. So wake up and look out. Next is the enemy of the church. Exhortation to the church, look out. Next, the enemy of the church. Now, one cannot possibly hope to fight an enemy or to watch out for an enemy until they've defined the enemy accurately. This was a continual frustration, I can assure you, during President Obama's administration where even though everyone knew what the enemy was and who the enemy was, they would not dare to even say the words radical Islamic jihadists, right, for fear that in political correctness correctness, we might offend people or somehow lump all of Islam together into this enemy that we were facing. And the same is true today. For political correctness, people will never name names today. They'll never accurately define the enemy for fear of political correctness and fear of hurting people's feelings, fear of being perceived wrongly. But yet we have to. We have to identify the enemy. Actually, Paul does. Paul identifies the enemy perfectly. He has no trouble naming names. This, these words here, if you look at them, they may, they may surprise you. If you look back at verse 2, look out for dogs, evildoers, those who mutilate flesh. That's incredibly strong rhetoric that that's almost seems foreign to something we would encounter in the Bible. And yet, these are true words, they're harsh words, but they aren't sinful words, they are accurate words. Now, here's what you should know. The non-believing world, non-believers out there in the world, this type of rhetoric is never employed of them. In fact, I would say just the opposite. It would appear that the apostolic teaching echo, echoes that of Jesus Christ, that The non-believing world, those who identify as non-believers, there's great optimism about them. Jesus said in Matthew 9, 37 through 38, said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest, because there will be a great multitude from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. They will flock to Jesus Christ. There is great optimism. And so these harsh words are not reserved for non believers or those who would, well, it it is in a way, but it's really reserved for those who bear the name of a Christian. This harshness is for those who say they are a Christian, but they pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who bear the name of Christ, but they undermine the gospel. Right? They may have the correct Trinitarian doctrine. Right? They might believe all the things that you believe about Jesus. They might profess to believe in salvation by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. But yet, they've added something to the gospel. And so they have, according to God's word, created another religion altogether. They're guilty of creating a new false religion altogether while they themselves are calling themselves Christians. So let me reiterate it and make it very clear to say it another way. The enemy to which you are to watch out for, to be vigilant for, to look out for, are those who seek to redefine Christianity. Those who would redefine Christianity. Those who lead people astray from salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, by adding something or subtracting something from the gospel. Even the smallest thing. Look back at your text in verse, in verse 2. You'll see the threefold repetition. It isn't three different groups of people he's talking about. He's talking about the same group of people, and he's applying three descriptors or words describing them. So the same person, three words describing them. In in English, we kind of miss, there's, a, there's this assonance that's there in, in the Greek, right? They kind of rhyme. But for us, it's dogs, evildoers, mutilators of flesh, but one commentator trying to c- capture that translated translates it this way, beware the cursed, beware the criminals, beware the cutters. Now, for us to really apply this to our to our time we have to really understand what Paul is saying in his time so go back in time to Paul's day so we can seek to understand that and then we can cross the bridge to our time and apply it now usually people don't apply it to our time they'll just tell you what it meant in Paul's time and they're going to leave it there but we'll seek to endeavor to apply it to our time so that we can be on the watch as well one people describe three layers. So bottom line up front, who are these people? Who are the dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of flesh? They're what's called the Judaizers. So Judaizers are Jews who have professed to convert to Christianity, who are supposed followers of Jesus Christ. And they say, however, unless you are circumcised and become a Jew first, then you are not also not a Christian, So you can have salvation by faith in Christ alone, but first you need to be circumcised. So they've only added one thing. One thing. Now in the Old Testament, we need a little bit of background for the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, in order to become a member of the covenant community, you had to be circumcised. This would be true, uh, obviously, of all Jews, but it would even be true of Gentile converts, A Gentile may undergo baptism where he could wash off his his Gentile filth and undergo circumcision and become a Jew. And so this is in the background. Now in the book of Acts, after Jesus sends out the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is poured out, the disciples with great boldness go out and they begin to preach in the ancient world, in the Roman world. And so you have the gospel coming into collision with the Greco-Roman culture, and many, most converts now at this point are, are non-Jews, and it unfolds in such a manner in the book of Acts so that you're able to see that the same blessing of Pentecost falls also upon the Gentile population, and one of the big, one of the big first ones we see is the conversion of a Roman centurion named Cornelius. He's what's known as a God-fearer. You can see this in Acts 10. A God-fearer means that he believes in the God of the Bible, but he has not converted to Judaism. He has a dream. And at the same time, uh, Peter, he's got this dream. So God is doing, he's working this thing, right? And then, so Peter, obedient to what God has shown him, God has to overcome this kind of racial prejudice that Peter has. Peter obeys. And he goes to preach the gospel. And Cornelius and everybody there, They the Holy Spirit falls upon them like it did at Pentecost. They believe, and by faith alone in Jesus Christ, they're converted. And the Holy Spirit falls upon them as evidence of that. So there's one one big first step. That Kind of the next big thing that happens is that the church of Antioch, they go, uh, Paul and Barnabas are there, they're preaching to the Hellenists there, and many of the Hellenists are believing. So not, not only do they just preach there, but that church in Antioch sends them out into the Roman world on a mission trip. And they go all about the Mediterranean preaching this gospel of salvation by faith alone and Christ alone to the Gentiles. And many Gentiles are converting everywhere they go. But they return back from this mission trip. When they come back to Antioch, guess who's come? The Judaizers. This is what we read in the book of Acts. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. There it is, as clear as day. It is not by faith alone, in Christ alone. But you must be circumcised according to Moses, or you cannot be saved. And so this sparks a, uh, an urgent meeting. It's called the Jerusalem Council, and you can read this in the book of Acts. And at the Jerusalem Council, Peter is there, and he recounts uh, what happened with Cornelius as evidence of the Holy Spirit coming. And it is indisputable that he has been saved by faith alone in Christ without taking circumcision. So then Paul and Barnabas go next, and they give their testimony of the same thing, that everywhere they have preached by faith alone, the Gentiles are being called into the people of God and are converting apart from circumcision. And so after they give their testimonies, James stands up and he renders a verdict. Isn't it interesting? It looks like James is the head of the church in Jerusalem, not Peter. And here's what he says. Gentiles do not have to be circumcised. They are not second-class citizens requiring circumcision according to the law of Moses. And he quotes Amos 9-11. An extremely important Old Testament text. This is what it says. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from old. Do you understand what James is saying? He's saying that this is the time. We're living in the time that God predestined and prophesied Through the prophet that he was going to rebuild the fallen tent of David, but not just with Jews. All of the Gentiles who are called by the name of Christ are part of this tent that is rebuilt, Jew and Gentile, the one people of God together. And so there's no need to take circumcision because God has done for them already inwardly what circumcision was only pointing to. In the giving of the Holy Spirit. So now there's not two people, there are only one people, the people of God, Jew and Gentile. And then they go out preaching this gospel everywhere, and it's settled back to Philippians. Years later, there are still Judaizers who have not submitted to the apostolic teaching. They're going around preaching everywhere Paul does that Paul is preaching, he's preaching an incorrect gospel, that if you, you, you Gentiles, You have part of the gospel, but not all of it. You need to be circumcised if you want to become truly saved. So this is what he is warning about. Now look at the language employed. Look at the language that Paul employs. He calls them dogs. This is what Jews used to call Gentiles. They're cursed. They're considered cursed. So now he he calls Jews dogs. It's not the Gentiles that are dogs. It's you who are preaching a false gospel. You're a dog. Next he calls them evildoers. Those who worked the law of Moses, those who were dedicated to the law of Moses in the time, were called workers of righteousness. This is the polar opposite of that. They are workers of evil. So in seeking to keep the law, these Judaizers are doing the exact opposite. They are now workers of evil in the world. Not workers of righteousness. Next he calls them mutilators of flesh. Now you might miss what Paul is driving at here. Because you may may be missing a key essential piece of some background information. But that's okay because you can still get the general thrust of it, right? He's saying you who would tell people they must be circumcised, you're a mutilator of flesh. You still can get it. But there's a little bit more. A mutilator of flesh was it was somewhat of a euphemism used by Jews to describe pagan priests. Because pagan priests would castrate themselves in dedication to their God. In fact, they couldn't serve as priests without castration. And so Paul is telling Jewish evangelists who are saying they're Christians but adding to the gospel just one thing. He says, you're a priest to a foreign god. You're an evangelist of a false gospel. Incredibly powerful, strong rhetoric used by Paul. You're a dog, an evildoer, a mutilator of flesh. You're a priest to a false God. I mean, this isn't new though. In Galatians, he says of the Galatians, maybe even something a little stronger. He says, I wish that those would, uh, that are unsettling you with this false gospel would castrate themselves. He said, "If they want to tell you to go ahead and, and do circumcision, they should just do it all the way." Why is Paul so harsh? Why is he so harsh? I mean, we kind of are like, "Oh, like, that's not a that's not the way apostles speak." And the answer to this question helps us to bridge the time culture gap to our own day. He has harsh words. His words are so strong. Again, as I said, these aren't words that are to the non-believer who's ready to hear the true gospel. These are for people who say they are Christians. But they have added to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are corrupting the gospel of Jesus Christ by adding one thing. Look out for dogs, evil workers, mutilators of flesh. So Paul's day, the Bible time, 2,000 years ago, there's his time and then there's our time. We have this long period of time in between right? And various cultures in between. And so we have to bridge Paul's day to our day before we can apply it. So what's the one thing, what's the universal truth that we can cross this long time culture gap with? The one lesson that never changes, watch out for those who corrupt the gospel. Beware of those who corrupt it in any way. Even if they bear the name of a brother, even if they profess the Trinity, even if they up front say they believe in salvation by faith alone, watch out for those who corrupt this gospel with anything, as if your life depended on it. So how do we apply that to our time? How do we look out for those who would bear the name of a Christian and corrupt the gospel with even the smallest thing? Well, let's apply it to our time so that we know how do we watch out? Who has corrupted the gospel of Jesus Christ in our day while bearing the name of Christian? Who are modern day dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of flesh? Who are those priests to pagan gods who would dare say that they are Christians? Well, first the obvious. The Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, they are a works-based religion They explicitly teach that you are not saved by faith alone, that you are saved after you have done all the works that you can. They also worship a false Christ, a created being. They do not believe in the Trinity and yet they will attempt to claim to be Christian. The Jehovah's Witness. The Jehovah's Witness believe you are saved according to your relationship with the Christ class or by being a Jehovah's Witness You are not saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And Jesus is the Archangel Michael. And yet they dare to say that they are Christians. They teach that you must follow their rules in order to be saved. You are saved by the rule keeping of the Jehovah's Witness. Next is the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church, does that come as a shock? It may come as a shock to you that I would say that. But in addition to adding numerous requirements for salvation, they have many papal bulls and councils explicitly renouncing salvation by faith alone. Papal bull unum sanctum from November 18, 1302. This is the Papal Bull, this is what the Pope says. Consequent, consequently, we declare, state, define, and pronounce that it is altogether necessary to salvation for every human to be subject to the Roman pontiff. You understand what it says? It says that if you are not in submission in relation to the Roman Pope, you cannot be saved. Now, I didn't say that. They said it out loud, right? The Council of Trent, 1547. And I believe this is maybe when the Catholic Church anathematized themselves. See, prior to this in the Reformation, the the goal of the Reformation wasn't to blow this church apart. It was to reform the church, back closer into line with the teaching of scriptures. But after this date, I believe this is when they anathematized themselves, Canon 9 of the Council of Trent in 1547. And this is the counter-reformation against Luther. They say this, If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the action of his own will, let him be anathema. So, whereas Paul will write an entire letter, the book of Galatians, defending the truth that you must be saved by faith alone and not works, they have said that that is anathema. All the while, I've heard many evangelical Christians, like Rick Warren, who actually go along and say that He's our Pope, and really probably a very good person. Now, that's not to say that he may not be a kind person or, or Catholic people that are in the Catholic. But I think many people in the Catholic Church, they may not even know what those in leadership have said. So there may even be many people in the Catholic Church that I believe God will call out of the Catholic Church, like Luther and Calvin and all of the Reformers were at one time Catholics. But it is to say that those in leadership preach another gospel altogether. And you know why maybe we reel from that? We reel from that in this type of language that you would say, hey, watch out for these people. That Roman Catholicism teaches a false gospel. Maybe because we don't take the gospel as seriously as Paul. Maybe there's somewhere down inside of us, that, that we really don't believe that people's eternal destinies are hanging in the balance here. So we shy away from Paul's rhetoric. And we, and we even shy away from trying to apply it to our own day. Now that I have your blood pressure up a little bit and you're a little nervous, let's bring it in closer to the Protestant church, okay? Uh, every proponent of the Word of Faith movement is a dog. I hope you don't read them, but in all likelihood, many of you may you may read them, right? You can't go into any Christian bookstore without it being filled with this absolute garbage and trash. Do you understand that, the, that these proponents of the word of faith movement believe that Jesus has done all that he can do and now the rest is up to you? They believe that faith is a force, that you are to, be, that you are to wield to your own advantage in this world, That if you are sick, it's because you don't have enough faith. If you are poor, it's because you don't have enough faith. If your children are rebellious, it's because you don't have enough faith. They believe that faith is the reality which you can wield like some kind of Star Wars force to your own advantage. So all of the things that Satan offers to the world and to Jesus, they tell you you can get it by faith. Isn't that interesting? Instead of faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ for the salvation of sinners, for the forgiveness of sins, they believe that Jesus has died so that you could have material prosperity and blessings in this life. I've seen numerous times and observed numerous worship services in the Word of Faith movement, and at the end, people are always come forward to be saved. From what to who, I have no idea. Because Jesus has never preached. Jesus has never preached as the God become man who died for sinners on a cross, that died for your sins. Sin is never mentioned. Sin is never preached. The need of repentance is never mentioned. And yet, at the end, people will come forward. They will come forward to be saved. From what? To who? No one has any idea. Dogs. It can be summarized in one tweet by Creflo Dollar, famous Word of Faith preacher. Jesus died for us so that we can lay claim to financial prosperity. He's a priest to a pagan god. Let's hit it a little closer to home. Just like we would say, hey, the, the Roman Catholic Church promotes baptismal regeneration and So do those of the Campbellite controversy, right? The churches of Christ, disciples of Christ, they do promote baptismal regeneration, just like the Judaizers, Judaizers promoted salvation by circumcision as entrance into the God's covenant community. But also Baptists, we have our own version, our own version called the sinner's prayer. By the way, the sinner's prayer is not in your Bible at all. You will not find it anywhere. It's an Americanized version of Christianity. Now, unless you mistake what I'm saying, I am most definitely not saying that a sinner crying out to God for salvation is is not biblical, because it most certainly is. A sinner crying out to God for salvation and coming to Christ, God loves to save sinners. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, That man went away justified. What shall we do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Putting words into the mouth of a child or a teenager and telling them this recite these words after me. Come down here to this altar, even though we have no altar. We don't have an altar in here. There is no altar. Christ died and it is complete. So even the terminology is flawed. There's no altar to come to, but come down here to this altar. Say this prayer after me. Repeat these words after me. I can get a kid to say anything. Every kid in here, I promise you right now, I could get to say a sinner's prayer. And they tell them, repeat these words. And if you pray these words that I tell you to pray, you will be a Christian. Never doubt your salvation. Time will come later on in life when things get tough. Maybe you fall into sin. But guess what? You look back to the time. When you walk down here and you said these words. Let me tell you what. This is going to come as a shock to you. This has more in common with paganism than it does Christianity. You see, in the ancient Roman world, you could go to a pagan temple, and a priest up at the front would open a scroll, and he would say every word, say every word on the scroll, exactly as it is written, and the deity will bless you. Friends, that's not Christianity. And we know, we see, we, see, we see the fruit of this. We see the fruit of this in the culture all around us. You know what happens, don't you? You know what happens that children that have been taught this, they will go to college. Eight out of ten of them will go to college, and they will leave Christianity for the rest of their life. They will never return. They will never return. They will go out into the world. They'll be just like the world. They'll fornicate they'll be engaged in homosexuality they'll get pregnant and they'll get abortions before abortion was uh, outlawed in Oklahoma if you were to go to abortion clinic here in Oklahoma five times i guarantee you at least two out of five you would see a bumper sticker for an evangelical church on the back of one of those cars getting an abortion no fault divorce showing no evidence they are christians then guess what happens 20 years later 20 years later, they'll run into someone like you. And you'll try to share the gospel with them because you care about them. And you want to see them come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And they'll tell you, I'm already a Christian. They'll say, I'm already a Christian. You'll say, what do you mean? You'll say, one time when I I was a kid, I came forward, I said the sinner's prayer, and they told me that I'd be a Christian forever to never doubt my salvation. Because I did this one thing. What would Paul call this practice, this American practice? What would he call it? You tell someone to do something, and that if they do this one thing, you tell them that they do it and they really mean it, that they're a Christian, and to never doubt ever again. And if they ever do, they should look back on the one thing that they did for assurance. (laughs) We're destroying ourselves. Forget the tax from outside of the church. We... Are destroying ourselves from the inside. This is the kind of adults this produces. So I, I, I saw this this week. It came across my reel on my Instagram. So if it came across mine, it came across your kids probably. You might have come across yours too. There's a podcast, and on this podcast are twenty-something-year-old adults. And this uh, this man he says to this uh, blonde girl across from him, "So you're a Christian?" She said, "Yes, I'm a Christian." He said, "Okay, so you." You follow Jesus and you believe what he says in the Bible. She said, no. No, I don't. But I'm still a Christian. See, it takes a long time to get where we are. But it's decades and decades and decades, right? And that's how we end up here, where we are today. Parents. What, what do you do when you're, maybe you're wondering, like, I have, I have an unconverted child. What do I do then? What do I do then? I have an unconverted child who, who I want to see them become a Christian. Um, what do I do? Maybe some even here right now. I know there are some here right now that aren't Christians. What do I do? Well, here's what you don't do. You don't ever put kids in, you don't ever put words in your kid's mouth. Don't ever do it. Your kids will say whatever you want them to say. They will believe whatever you want them to believe when they are young. Here's what you tell them you teach them the gospel. You teach it to them every day. You teach it to them over and over that God saves sinners. And not just that He saves sinners, that God loves to save sinners. In fact, He loves to save sinners so much that He sent His only Son to die for their sins that he died, that he was buried, and he rose three days later. And then you tell them that based solely on their faith in Christ alone and nothing else, that God will save them. And then you press home the urgency of it. Press home the urgency that they believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ now. And here's what you're going to find. You don't need to put words in their mouth. In fact, it's not just a kid. It's not just kids, it's grown adults. You don't need to put words in their mouth because we believe that the Holy Spirit is the one who is active in salvation and he'll put the words in their mouth. They will openly confess their sin and call out to God for salvation and it won't be your words and it won't be a formula and it will be real. It'll be authentic. They will trust the Lord and he will save them. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. Trust him. Believe it. Let me, lastly, let me tell you one, one other insidious form of the same error that we encounter in our culture. I do not know really what to call this, so I made up a name. Okay? I'm calling it the adjectival error of the true Christian. Now, this attached to this adjectival error of the true Christian is usually a verbal action. A true Christian does this. A true Christian would be engaged in this political struggle. A true Christian would hold to all of the secondary doctrines like baptism, the Lord's Supper, or the tertiary doctrines like church structure or eschatology. A true Christian would believe and hold to all these things, and it just so happens to be the same ones I hold to, right? A true Christian is an abolitionist. A true Christian is a premillennialist. A true Christian is a Calvinist. And then you circle the wagons. You separate from everyone else right, in the global church. You circle the wagons into your true Christian little fellowship. Be careful, friends. Be careful. You are on the verge of redefining Christianity itself. You're on the verge, of becoming a worker of evil. Just think about what happened. Let's do a thought experiment. Since we're here and we're in a militaristic culture, most of you have served in the military, filled with retired veterans and active service members. I'll give you one example of thought membership. So, so say for the next 100 years, a group of people said this. We believe in salvation by faith alone and Christ alone. According to the glory of God alone, we profess... The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Trinity, Christ alone. But we believe you must be a pacifist to be a true Christian. You cannot serve in the military if you are a true Christian. So for 100 years, this goes on. What do you have now? You have a sect, you have a cult. Only those that are real Christians. So if you, if you want to convert, leave the military first. Leave the military and then come join our church by faith alone. What do you have? You have a different religion. You have a completely different religion. With this one error, the true Christian. The true Christian would the true christian believes so be careful we are talking about this in this text to be to be on the lookout not for everyone who disagrees with us on baptism not for everyone who disagrees with us on the lord's supper or the governance of the church or continuations even of the charismatic spiritual gifts or of eschatology this is about the gospel If any man professes faith alone, in Christ alone, the exclusivity of Christ to the glory of God alone, then that man or woman is my brother and sister. We are fellow fellow soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether that person is an Arminian, a Wesleyan, a Methodist, a Presbyterian, a Lutheran, a Pentecostal, a Charismatic, a Methodist, or a Baptist, if they profess salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, they are our brother and sister in Christ. No exceptions. We do not have the market on true Christianity in the Reformed Baptist world. But if you call yourself a Christian and you undermine the gospel in any way, you get no quarter. You're a dog an evil worker. You are priest to a foreign god. We must know our enemy. Our enemy is any addition to the gospel whatsoever. And for them the strongest rhetoric must be employed. So we have the exhortation to the church. Next we see the enemy of the church. And lastly we see the ex- exaltation of Christ. The exaltation of Christ, the eradicator of all human pride and self-righteousness, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The equalizer of the enemy of the church is simply this, the exaltation of Jesus Christ above all things. If you are exalting in Jesus Christ, then you cannot fall into a trap of additions to the gospel because you're too busy looking at the source of your salvation. This section, beginning in Philippians 3.1 and continuing through 11, remember, it's set in this framework of rejoicing in the Lord. That's the safeguard. Rejoice in the Lord. He'll say it in 4.11. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. You can't rejoice in the Lord and rejoice in Christ and then go, you know what? He didn't do it enough. I need to take circumcision. You're too busy rejoicing in Christ. Rejoicing in what he has done. Look what he says. In 3 3. For we, and this is radical, we are the circumcision. Okay, he, he's a circumcised Jew, but he's talking to uncircumcised Gentiles. And he says, We, those who have faith in Jesus Christ, we are the true people of God. We are the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit. He gives three, three qualifiers who worship by the Spirit who glory in Christ, who put no confidence in the flesh. Those who worship by the Spirit of God. Those who worship by the Spirit are those who have received the regeneration and the gift of the Holy Spirit, where God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. That which circumcision only pointed to, the Holy Spirit has operated in our hearts, circumcising our hearts, regenerating us, causing us to come alive. And it is by the power of the Spirit that we not only are regenerated, But we worship God. What does the Spirit then do in our worship? Well, the Spirit causes us to glory in Jesus Christ. What does that mean to glory in Christ? We know of the glory of Christ, but what does it mean to glory in Christ? It means to boast. It means to boast in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no boasting in anything any human could ever do for those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only Christ, only his accomplishments. Only his perfect sinless life that do I have to boast in. Only his perfect life. Only in his sacrificial death for my sins. Can you say that about yourself? That you boast in that Christ died for your sins. Not for your parents, not for your relatives, but for yours. Do you boast in the Lord? Do you glory in Christ? Do you glory in his death? That his death, the wages of sin is death. It's my death that he took it. Do you boast that Christ died? took the wages of sin, and not only died, that he rose again victorious three days later, that you boast in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, his sacrificial death, his burial, his resurrection. And brothers and sisters, if you are boasting in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are impervious to any false teaching that would ever come into the church. And the result? We put no confidence in the flesh. That's how it works. We worship by the Spirit. We boast in Christ. There is no confidence in the flesh. There is no confidence in human works. We glory in Christ. He has everything to us. To him alone be glory, honor, and praise. As we often sing, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. We exalt Christ. We will exalt him forever and ever. And this is the best defense. This is the best defense. Take your eyes off of yourself, off of any human work, off any achievement or any merit. You have none. Simply look to Christ and boast in him. This is the exaltation of Christ. So today we have seen the exhortation to the church, the enemy of the church, Of course, the answer is always the exaltation of Christ. Now, how do we in our culture with so many perversions of the gospel that are so close, they're so close, the teachers look so good, they profess many of the same doctrines that we do, how do we know the real thing? How do I prepare my children to know the real thing from the false thing? Well, there's an old illustration. You've probably heard of it by now. It's kind of becoming outdated because we don't use paper money anymore. Um, I, I rarely have any paper money on me ever. Uh, John MacArthur gives this uh, money illustration right, where he says, how do you know the real thing from the false thing, like false currencies? Well, the only way you know it is to actually know the real thing. So Tim Challies, you know the blogger Tim Challies? He sought to investigate this out. Is there something behind this illustration? Is this for real? So I guess you know he's Canadian, so he goes to Canadian authorities and he wants to see can he go to check out the banks and the money and whatever. So he goes to the bank and he's like, how do you, how do you find out counterfeit currency? How do you know? So and, uh, guess what the answer is? They don't train them on every false currency. There's too many. They just get them to know the real thing. They touch it. They look at it. They know it. And now immediately when they touch the false thing, they immediately know it. They know it. It's real. It works. And this is the same thing for us. How do you guard against people who profess all of the correct doctrines, who say that they're Christians, who look good, maybe even have a a rising ministry? How do you protect against that? You just know the real thing. You know the real thing. The real thing. Right? One more time. Because I know there are many of you here who are not converted. And it's my hope and my desire that you would be today. Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. It's out of the great love which God loves us that he sent his son into the world. Jesus was born of a virgin, truly God and truly man. He lived the perfect life, the life you cannot live. He obeyed all of God's laws perfectly. But he only lived perfectly, he died perfectly. He died in the place of sinners. And if you're here today, I got news for you. You're a sinner. Just like me just like everyone else here that is a Christian. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's you. And Jesus died for sinners. What does that mean? For you. That's the question. Not did Jesus die for the preacher's sins. Do you believe he died for your sins? He died for sinners, but he didn't just die for them. He conquered death, our greatest enemy, that which everyone fears, that one day death is coming for us all. He took it willingly. The wages of sin is death, and he beat death by resurrecting. God validated his ministry by raising him from the dead. Christ lives. He's alive today. Jesus Christ is a real person. He is alive today. And he calls out to people, I was saved once like hopefully you will be today, sitting in a place like you. And I heard the gospel, and I heard heard supernaturally the call of Christ to me as lost sheep, that he lives to make intercession, that he died for my sins, and that he would forgive me if I came to him. And he will forgive you today. You will know forgiveness of sins. You'll have the eternal, that burden that weighs you down, that, that sense of lostness that you don't know what to do with your life. There's, these things of the world can't fill the hole in your heart. Christ will fill it all. Not only will he forgive your sins, fill that hole in your heart, but he'll give you eternal life. That even when death comes, it won't separate you from the love of God. Friends, this is the best news in the world. And what I'm telling you today is you don't have to do anything to receive it. But simply stop rebelling and running from God. Turn around and face Him. Fall on your knees and call out to Him for salvation and you'll be saved by faith alone in Christ. We are saved by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone to the glory of God. All else are counterfeits. So look out. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder of that you, God, save people not based on anything that they bring to you. God, we must, as a church, safeguard the truth of the gospel for the next generation. So, Lord, would you give our church members the boldness to believe this truth and to profess it till the day that they die? God, I pray here that for anyone here that is not a Christian. God, I pray that you would do the supernatural, only what you can do. That you would grant them repentance leading to eternal life. God, help them to see a vision of Christ as irresistible, that they must leave their sin and they must have Christ. God, I pray that you would grant them faith, give them faith as a gift that they would run to you. We long to see many saved for every person here to become a Christian. We ask that you would grant it for the glory of Jesus Christ. It says, His name I pray. Amen.